Good morning. Did everybody have a wonderful Thanksgiving? Yeah. Um, has anybody uh, hidden their scales for the holidays? Yeah. I was uh, unfortunate to, enough to get on my scale this morning, and it wasn't a pretty sight. You know, that's why I've been wearing shirts out for the last 30 years to hide that uh, wonderful belly that the Lord's given me. But you know, in reality, every day is really a day of thanksgiving for us as Christians, isn't it? Because we just have so much to be thankful for, so many ways that the Lord's blessed us each and every day. Well, this Sunday we begin our five-week Advent season, and the word Advent derived from the Latin word Adventus, means coming, which is a translation of the Greek word parousia. Most notably, Advent speaks of the first and second coming of Christ. Advent points us to the fulfillment of the promises of God that Christ has come to save us from our sins, and he'll come again to redeem and restore all things to God's original intentions in creation. Advent is seen as a time of preparation. One catechism describes Advent beautifully when it says, when the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah, for by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their, ad- their ardent desire for his second coming. By celebrating the precursor's birth and crucifixion, the church unites herself to his desire, he must increase, but I must decrease. The church during Advent looks back upon Christ's coming in celebration while at the same time looking forward with eager anticipation to the coming of Christ's kingdom, when he returns for his people. In this light, the Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which we just sung, perfectly represents his church cry during the Advent season. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. While Israel would have sung the song in expectation of the Messiah's first coming, the church now sings the song in commemoration of that first coming and in expectation of the second coming. This Advent season, we're going to spend our time focusing specifically on the five women who are listed in the genealogy of Jesus as found in the Gospel of Matthew. There's always been a fascination with genealogies, people who do extensive research into their family tree, trying to find out origins of their family, where they've come from, who might be part of their family. Do we have any people in our family that are famous, maybe a king, a president, a famous inventor, a scholar, or an entrepreneur, maybe a famous Christian missionary, theologian, or pastor? And it was no different in the ancient Jewish culture. It was a patriarchal society where only men were esteemed and included. Women and children were considered second class. The patriarch would only desire to list the best of the best in his family tree with hopes of minimizing or hiding any shady characters or people of disrepute. They wanted only men of nobility, position, power, wealth, men of standing, men of importance, and especially if you were from a royal lineage. And yet Matthew's genealogy of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords lists five women. Women who had a first glance appear to be the kind that a great king would not want listed in his family tree. These five women who will be the focus over the next five weeks are Tamar, an abandoned and betrayed widow who deceives her father-in-law, 
Rahab, who was a prostitute, Ruth, a pagan Moabitess widow without a family, Bathsheba, who had an adulterous affair with a king that led to the murder of her husband, and Mary, a poor 13-year-old virgin girl. But in these five women, amazingly, we're going to find the message and treasures found in Christmas. Hope, peace, joy, love, and fulfilled promises. For each of them, in their own way, are going to point us to Jesus. Before we focus on the story of Tamar, the first woman of our Advent season, we need to read a portion of Matthew's genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, because I want to show you a scarlet thread that runs through it. I want you to see that what is revealed in this genealogy is God's amazing plan of redemption. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read some of that genealogy. And this is especially for most of us who, when we get to genealogies, kind of just like to skip on over it. And now there's a bunch of names there that I don't know how to pronounce. And so what's really the use? But there's really some rich depth that is to be found here. So I'm just going to read some excerpts here. Verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. <clears throat> Excuse me. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, who we're going to be focusing on. Perez, the father of Hezron. Then if you go down, you can see where the women are listed. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. You go down further. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We know he's talking about Bathsheba. And this comes all the way through Jesus' lineage from Abraham all the way to what it says in the close of this genealogy. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. So for you to really understand what's going on in the story that we're going to be looking at about Judah and Tamar, which is found in Genesis chapter 38, is we need to review how and why we've gotten to this place in God's story of redemption. Genesis begins with God's glory and creation and his wonderful design of humanity to be in relationship with him. Humanity's rebellion, disobedience, and sin results in the entire creation subjected to the fall, to be cursed subject to death and decay. The genealogy we just read is about God's promise to provide a Savior through the line of Abraham, through the line of David, who would make all things right, who would redeem and reconcile and restore humanity to a right standing with God. The very promise God makes of this is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God's promise is that Savior of a future woman's seed would be born who would destroy the work of the devil, who would end the curse which has invaded the planet through sin and provide humanity with a way back to God. And it's what we're seeing in the genealogy that we just read. Man's wickedness grows and becomes all pervasive, and God judges the world through a flood, but he spares Noah and his family, who would be responsible then to re-multiply the earth. Over many years, humanity does multiply, but once again grows 
increasingly wicked, rebellious, and independent of God's will. <clears throat> so he judges the people at the Tower of Babel. He confuses their language, and he disperses them through the world, and that's where the nations are formed. Which brings us to Genesis chapter 12, where God chooses Abram and his family line to create a nation through which a future Messiah would be born. And God gives Abram this promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And then in Genesis chapter 17, 8, he adds this promise. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. God promises Abraham that through him a great nation would come. Though his family line, through his family line, a future Savior would come, and the land of Canaan would be his family's everlasting possession. You see, these promises are important to remember as a backdrop to the story of Judah and Tamar. As we found their names and their lineage leading all the way to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Sometimes I think as Americans we tend to think that God's redemptive purposes and plans are centered around us in the United States of America. But God's word reveals something absolutely different. There's a land, a biblical land, that was and always will be the center of God's redemptive activities. The land promised to Abraham is an everlasting possession. The land that would be passed on through his family tree. And that began with the Garden of Eden which was in the same region where God tells Abraham to go to Canaan, the land I will show you. It's seen through God leading the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt to a land that's described as flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. The land where a nation called out people would live for God and be a reflection of his holiness and his greatness to the nations. The land where Bethlehem, the birth of the Savior, is located. Jerusalem, where the Savior lived, was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. The land where the Old Testament prophets proclaimed the Messiah would return to defeat Satan and all his enemies and establish his millennial kingdom. The place described in Revelation where the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, joining a new earth where believers in Christ will dwell with him forever. The land promised to Abraham and his heirs is this land. It's a very important place. It's not just any land, but the land that serves as grand central for God's divine redemptive plan. So we see that Abraham has a son, and he's named Isaac. And Isaac then has a son he named is Jacob, who has 12 sons. And in chapter 37 of Genesis, the famous story of his youngest son, Joseph, begins. And his story carries on through almost the rest of Genesis through all to the 50th chapter. But right there, wedged in between 37, where Joseph's story begins, and where chapter 39, where it picks up again, there's wedged in this, this story about Tamar and Judah. Joseph is Jacob's favorite, and he's spoiled, and he's brash, and he's immature. His brothers grow to hate him and have a deep-seated resentment against him, so his brothers plot to kill him. But Reuben, his oldest son convinces them to throw him into a pit instead because he hopes to come back and save him. But one of our main characters, Judah, driven by greed, tells his brothers, why kill Joseph and get nothing out of it? 
let's sell Joseph to this caravan of slave traders heading south to Egypt, and so they decide to do just that. The story of Joseph carries on through chapter 50, the final chapter, and then this focus turns in chapter 38 to this crazy sordid tale of two people named Judah and Tamar. And let's go ahead and pick up right there in Genesis 38, 1 through 5. And it says, At that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and laid with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. So this chapter begins with the phrase, at this time, and it's describing the time just after Judah and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. It says Judah left his brothers, and that tells us that Judah wanted nothing more to do with his father's household. And think for a minute what that would have been like. Jacob, their father, is constantly mourning at the loss of, their favorite, of his favorite son because the brothers told him he's dead. Every day the rest of them had a constant reminder of what they had done. They are living in deceit, which is a difficult, difficult way to live feeling guilty and, and shameful, living in hiding, knowing you're keeping this secret from your father. So Judah gets out of there. He had had enough, and he went down to stay with a man from Adullam named Hira. And Hira is a Canaanite. He's a man who worships pagan gods. He's an unbeliever. He doesn't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The text infers that Judah wasn't interested in following his dad's God any longer, so he takes off to live in the world amongst the Canaanites. And as we're going to see in this text, Hiram is that friend that Christians hang out with knowing full well they shouldn't because they're always getting into trouble doing things that aren't right, things that dishonor God. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. As Christ's followers, we are called by Jesus to live in the world but not of the world. But if being in the world is leading you to be of the world, then more than likely you've lost your witness. You're living in sin. You're no longer light in the darkness. Your spiritual life is suffering. And before long, just like Judah, you're going to walk away from your faith. It says Judah met, married, and had sex with his wife. And, and that sounds pretty wholesome in the NIV. It kind of sounds like the natural process of meeting, getting to know someone, Falling in love, getting married, having a wonderful sexual relationship, and she gets pregnant. But the King James reads like this, Judah saw, took, went in unto her. It kind of appears from the King James Version that Judah is not really concerned about a love relationship here, but about fulfilling his lust and getting a woman who's going to bear him sons. So Judah marries a Canaanite woman, which was strictly forbidden for God's people to do. In Genesis 24-3, when Abraham instructs his servant to go out and find a, a wife for his son, Isaac, he says, but don't go among the Canaanite people. Do not find a woman from there. Genesis 28-1, Isaac tells his firstborn son, Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite woman. And, and why? Why are these dads telling their sons this? Is this some early form of prejudice or racism? No. 
You see, Israel was to be a distinct people unto their God, a, a called-out nation, a holy people set apart to reflect his character and his greatness and his goodness to the surrounding nations. His glory would be demonstrated to nations through them. Through their worship and obedience to his laws, they would remain safely under his umbrella of protection and provision. In Deuteronomy 18, 9, and 11, it says, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the pagan nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. And basically this text is telling us kind of the lifestyle and the worship practices of the Canaanites to the point where they were known to sometimes sacrifice their children in the fire to gods, that they were involved in witchcraft and casting spells and various things. And then in Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4, it says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And here's the reason. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And you know, it's, it's really no different for Christians today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians six fourteen and 15, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And Christian, if you're dating and getting serious with someone who does not believe and follow Christ, I think that God probably wants to ask you a few questions. How can a dedicated follower of mine build a life with someone who rejects Jesus? The very Savior you profess to know, worship, love, and serve. The one who is to be the Lord over all your life and your heart. How can a dedicated follower of mine build a life with someone who rejects the Bible as God's word? The book you use to build your life, your worldview, your morality, your values and priorities, the book you're used to help make major decisions in your life. How can you raise future children with a man or woman who wants nothing to do with your God, your faith, your church, or God's purpose for life, or the lives of your children? And you see, it's, it's very important to understand that because once a person gives their heart away, it's impossible to get it back. And you make these decisions based on attraction and on feelings of love, but you don't realize just how difficult the future would be when you're unequally yoked. God knew that if he left the Israelites near the Canaanites, that his redemptive plan and purpose through that nation would be lost, just as he knows that the plan and purpose for a Christian's life who is unequally yoked would also be lost. The unsavory events of this story illustrate the danger that Israel as God's separated people faced if they remained among the Canaanites and was a huge reason through Joseph and a future famine in the land that he moved Jacob's family line of Abraham to Egypt. You see, when we look at the story, we think that, that they were just moved there because a, a, a famine was going on and that they weren't going to survive, so Jacob moves his family all up close to Egypt where Joseph was, and we think, well, that's common sense. But you see, the, in Egypt, the Israelites were kept separate because the Egyptians despised them. While there, God's people were able to develop into a nation of millions just as God had promised Abraham without losing their identity. So Judah has three sons with his Canaanite wife. The firstborn, Ur, a Jew, was a Jewish name reflecting that Judah still must have had some faith at this time. His second was named Onan, and his third, Shelah, 
And I think that's what happens when parents desire a girl and actually have a third boy. But you see, where he names his firstborn a Jewish name, these last two names are actually Canaanite names. Let's go on in our text, Genesis 38, 6 and 7. It says, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. You see, it's not surprising that Judah goes out and finds a Canaanite wife for his firstborn son because basically he's practicing on his lifestyle and his values to his son. Ur is identified as a wicked man, so much so that God puts him to death. We, we're not told what he's doing that it's so wicked, but ultimately it was wicked and perverse enough where God ended his life. So Tamar becomes a widow. Let's read on in verses 8 through 10. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he laid with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. This is a crazy text, I know. And it doesn't translate really well to our Western contemporary society and values, but there really is a lot to glean from this. In a patriarchal society, the women basically had no rights. And if their husband died, they needed to have a male child who could receive the inheritance, the father's possessions, and money and land. If there was no male child, then the widow would become poor and destitute, for there was no social safety net that would be provided for her. The society during this time and later in Jewish law, we can find in Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, where it kind of outlines this, instituted what was called the Leveret Marriage. And that's where the oldest brother in line to the dead husband would take the dead husband's wife as his own, and the firstborn son of their union would be considered his dead brother's heir so that his inheritance could pass on and his name would be preserved. It served as a protection for the widow and her children, ensuring they would have a male provider and protector. And I, I know that sounds absurd in an advanced Western society where we want women to have equal rights with men. You know, this law is still in existence in some patriarchal societies in our world today. Onan, the second-born son of Judah, he wants the sex without the responsibility, and oh, how that sounds a lot like our culture today. He has no intention on fulfilling his duty to Tamar. God sees his wickedness and ends his life like he did the life of Ur. Judah knows full well the promises God gave to Abraham. Since his three older brothers were discredited in one way or another, he knows from his father Jacob that he's the one in line to fulfill the promise of God. Judah has basically made a mess of it all. He leaves his father. He leaves God's people. He becomes best friends with an unbeliever. He marries an unbelieving wife. He raises up two sons to this point who are wicked that God ends their lives. Sons that God has no intentions of uh, being in the future uh, Messiah's lineage. So let's read on in Genesis 38, 11, and 12. Okay. 
Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. So Judah's wife, wife dies. He tells Tamar to return to his father's house for his third son is too young and gives him time to grow up. And I promise you, Tamar, that I'll provide this youngest son to fulfill his duty. At this point, this is a societal shame for Tamar to go back to her father's house for she's now older and she is without a husband, without children, without a dowry. But Judah really has no intentions on allowing his youngest to fill the duty because what we're seeing him saying here, what he's thinking here is that, hey, Tamar is really the one who's responsible for these first two sons being dead. He's blaming Tamar instead of blaming basically himself who's raised these two wicked sons. Time has passed. It's shearing season for the sheep, and it's where all the men would head to infamous Timnal, where the shearing occurs, and there would be a festival there of drunken revelry. Judah gets his unbelieving drinking buddy, Hira, to come along. And so the two of them have headed there to you know, the festival of shearing the sheep, but what goes on is a bunch of men who are there just getting wild and crazy. So let's read on in verses 13 through 19. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that through Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So... Tamar hears where Judah is going, and she knows full well what's going on uh, in the festival there in Timnah, and she knows that these guys are up there to get wild and crazy, so she, uh, she's seeking justice. She's seeking for this duty to be fulfilled. She's seeking a son who will be an heir so that she'll be provided and protected. And uh, so she disguises herself as a prostitute, puts a veil over her face so she can't be recognized. I know this sounds very deceptive and sinful on Tamar's part, but let me ask you, have you ever felt like that person where everyone's life is moving forward and you're stuck in what feels like perpetual waiting? That's Tamar. Tamar is stuck in a very hard place because she has returned to her father's house to wait for Sheila to grow up. She has no status, no inheritance, no social security would ever come her way because her only route to her future was through children. And now she's not eligible to marry anyone else as she's waiting for Sheila, so really Judah was in control of her future. She's experienced the pain of becoming a young widow, now twice. She has felt the sting of deception and betrayal, and she feels she deserves justice. In a world where women had almost zero prospects outside of marrying well and bearing children, Tamar's plight was desperate. And still she has been waiting patiently. And faith isn't hard at first. But when days turn into months and stretch into years, faith can really wear thin, can it? When you've been waiting for something for so long, when you believe God wants this for your life, 
and you're just waiting and waiting. It's at this point when we are most vulnerable that we have the danger of running ahead of God by taking matters into our own hands. And it's always foolhardy to take matters into your own hands. You remember Abram and Sarah? And they grew old in age, and they had the promise of, of a son, and that son was going to be the one who would carry the messianic line in which the future Messiah would be born. And so what do they do? They get tired of waiting, and Sarah goes to Abram and says, hey, impregnate my, my maidservant, Hagar. And so Abraham does that, and, and Ishmael is born, but what we don't realize is that Ishmael ends up being basically the father of the Arab nation, which is the future Muslim nation, which is basically, and it was prophesied that they would be in war forever with the Jewish people. You see, when we try to make decisions in our own wisdom, when we don't wait upon God and wait for his will to break through, some really bad things can be in store. So Tamar, disguised as a prostitute, sleeps with her father-in-law. He promises a goat for payment. But she knows he's not trustworthy, so she demands what would be, in essence, his driver's license, social security card, and credit card. The items were, in essence, his societal, his prestige and privilege. Tamar gets pregnant with Judah's baby, and amazingly, through all of this sordid mess the heir to both provide for Tamar's future and the child to carry on the messianic line to Jesus would be born. Can you believe that? This is a sordid story. What a messy situation, and yet God is fulfilling his plan and purpose and promise through it all. Let's read on in verses 20 to 23. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Amnon? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I, I did send her the young goat, but you didn't find her. So basically, Judah is trying to fulfill his duty as far as bringing this shrine prostitute, the, the goat that he promised her, but they couldn't find her. And so now he's basically trying to save face. He's trying to save public shame. He doesn't want to let everybody know that this is what happened and how he lost all of the, you know, his driver's license, credit card, and social security card. And so he says, let's just close the matter so I don't experience this public shame. Let's read out to verse 24 and 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. What a hypocrite. The guy is judging Tamar for the very sin that he was committing himself. When he finds out who it is that he gave his belongings to, he could only find, say that she is more righteous than I. 
As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. She is more righteous than I. I believe finally in this moment, he understood how he had wronged her and his heart was changed. Judah does eventually return to his father's house and to his faith. Let's read the final verses in this. Verse 27, When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first, but when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. God's sovereign plan through the lives of Judah and Tamar has been accomplished. And who is the son to carry on the lineage unto Jesus? Perez. It's almost similar to the story of Esau and Jacob. God's the one who chooses the one who's going to carry on the lineage. Let's return to Matthew 1, 1 through 3 to look at the genealogy one more time. Are you, are you starting to see how this is all fitting together? As you, can you see now through a, a genealogy of just a bunch of names how this is just a picture of God's divine, sovereign, redemptive plan to bring his Savior into the world for us? A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose name was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. There's his name right there. Tamar's name is in this genealogy. With all her sordid past and the things involved in her life. And her son, Perez, is carrying on the lineage to our Savior. Why would Matthew call out Tamar by name? Why would God include such scandal in the lineage of Jesus? Maybe it's because scandalous sin needs scandalous grace. Tamar reminds us that the baby in a manger came to pay for our scandalous sin. Think about it. How would you feel if your most hidden scandalous sin was displayed on the pages of scriptures forever and ever? Tamar's story points to the amazing grace of God. Not that he rewards us for taking matters into our own hands. Tamar's story teaches us God is sovereign over our foolish sin, our mistakes, and our failures. That God can override the effects of those who have deceived and betrayed us and his purposes will still prevail. That he can truly bring good for his glory through anything that has happened to us and anyone who has wronged us. What an incredible story of how God sovereignly works in and through sinful people's lives to accomplish his wonderful plan of grace his sovereign plan of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. The beauty in it is we can know that he can use sinful people like Judah and Tamar. He can use you and I for his glorious redemptive purpose in our world. 
Your sin doesn't cancel you out. Your sin is the reason why Jesus came. Tamar was a complicated person with a messy life whose presence in the genealogy of Jesus shows precisely the kind of people he came to save. In place of desperate acts and broken hopes, the coming Messiah would bring real hope into the world, and we have seen that through the story of Tamar. A messy, sordid mess that God used for his redemptive purposes and plans. And it's the very plan that he has for your life and mine. Chris, why don't you and the band come on up? And as the band's playing, I want you just to sit there and take some time of reflection. Maybe there's some sin this morning that you need to bring before the Lord. Maybe there's something that you want to release to him and turn from. Maybe your life is like Judah where you've wandered away and, and now God's calling you back. Maybe there's something in your life that you need to find hope. And the message this morning is that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter what you're struggling with, that there can be hope found in Jesus Christ. So I want you in the quiet of your own time right now, just close your eyes, spend some time in prayer, and bring whatever it is that you need to to the Lord. Allow Him to touch it. Allow Him to forgive it. Allow Him to heal the wounded parts of your heart and begin to instill hope once again that everything that you're going through, He plans to use for His redemptive purposes in your life and in the lives of others. Go ahead and spend some time in prayer.